Hello, Trash Crusaders. Welcome to Save Trash Cinema, the podcast where exploitation and exploration come together. It is I, your guide through trash cinema, everyone's favorite dumpster boy, Cayman Darty. And on today's episode, we're delighted to bring to you a very special interview with indie filmmaker and horror curator Tony Wash. Not only is Tony an integral part of Bloody Disgusting, but he's written and directed award-winning shorts, produced critically acclaimed films such as The Stylist, but is also just a genuinely awesome person and someone we are honored to have on the show. But before we dive too far in, let's do a little quick housekeeping. We'd love it if you'd rated and reviewed the podcast on your podcast app of choice. Don't forget to be on the show by submitting movie recommendations or by being a guest host by emailing us at savetrashcinema.gmail.com or you can DM us on Twitter at savetrashcinema or on Instagram at savetrashcinema as well. Make sure to check out last week's episode when we pushed the limits of what would consider socially acceptable as we covered the 1988 Linnea Quigley trash classic, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolarama. We will be continuing to release mini-sodes, crossover episodes, interviews, and even game shows. So keep your eyes peeled for some exciting content coming down the pipeline. But enough about that. Let's get the show on the road. Tony Wash, everyone. Thank you for coming on the show, Tony. We're so excited to have you here. I am excited to be talking to you, Cayman. It was nice to see you again in Atlanta last week, and uh, I was I felt very honored to be invited onto your show. No, look, we are honored to have you here. And like you said, we actually met a couple of years ago at Days of the Dead in Atlanta. I want to say it was like right before the pandemic hit. And yep. you had a booth at the show and were promoting both Skeletons in the Closet, your anthology film, as well as The Rake, which I do want to point out The Rake is fantastic and is currently on Peacock. So if you have a Peacock subscription, go check it out. It is a fantastic creature feature. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, but we immediately struck up, a, struck up a conversation regarding our shared interest in uh, in dark synth pop, funnily enough. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you guys were just like blasting the soundtrack to Skeletons in the Closet, which immediately I, I'm a huge dark synth pop guy. So I immediately walk over and I'm like, OK, these guys are up to something good. Like I can I know it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm glad that I attracted you. Like uh, I, I had the minnow out on the hook and was just waiting, you know? Um, yeah. You know, I, I grew up in the eighties. I've always been a fan of eighties music. New wave especially has been just the usage of synthesizers and, um, and kind of more melodic type of, of music has always been something that I've been a fan of. And so as I started creating films as a filmmaker, all of my stuff, has to some degree influence from the 70s and 80s that that influenced me to be a filmmaker and a storyteller definitely in a visual aesthetic as well as uh, audio wise so like something like the rake is more rooted in the the 70s type of you know the shining tone mm -hmm. the atmosphere of a movie like alien or um you know even a haunted movie like the changeling or something whereas Skeletons in the Closet and my first feature, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To, are very much so your 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 love letter to the, the mid to late 80s, just fun, 
off the wall campy but but still have the roots in horror um type of movies and and so i think that the soundtracks just lend themselves to having that synth driven carpenter-esque type of style to them so i'm glad that it attracted you and got us to meet and not only have you supported some of my catalog and i appreciate that but here you are you know three years after we met still talking about your enjoyment of, of our catalog and and now helping me promote it to other people yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm glad to do so because I do believe in the films you've made and I had like a really good connection with I, I particularly love Skeletons in the Closet, which we'll, we'll dive a little bit deeper. I have some questions about that and how that works. Um, but I, I, you know, to your point, though, you're mentioning about the, the dark synth drop pop driven nature of like the 80s films. And one of the shorts I've been lucky enough to see the muck, which is fucking amazing let me just go ahead and say that outright um it's six minutes long five minutes of it is just this absolutely popping synth soundtrack they just like it's just a perfect setup you know you can just get the vibe but like immediately from the start of the short until the horrific end of the short and just really good like i you know i'm kind of curious and and i I feel bad we're not like diving more into your history but we'll, we'll get to that but you know with with the with you know kind of pulling i know you said that you you know kind of grew up with this type of music but like how do you feel like that that fits into your films like how do you drive like the music because a lot of your films are driven by music in that score like how is that something when you're going through the process of writing a film where you're like yes this is going to work or no we need to switch it up we need to do something maybe a little bit more classic or we need to do something a little more haunting or let's just go bombastic and drop that sweet 80s synth well, I think that I think that audio is just as important for telling a story in a movie and getting reactions out of your audience and building a mood and an atmosphere as the visuals are and as the acting is and every other aspect of making a film. You know, you like in a lot of ways, I'm jealous of like novelists because they can literally sit at their desk and write a novel and it could be as big a budget or as little budget of a concept as they want because it's all reliant on themselves. Or a painter like my friend Adam Michaels, who can sit mm-hmm. in his in his room in his office and draw and paint, and he has something that he can then take and sell at conventions and promote his talent. With a film, it's like there is such a conglomeration of so many different aspects and people involved that um, that I I just I really love that aspect of filmmaking, and it's what it's part of what drew me into wanting to make movies in the first place, telling stories visually, you know, obviously as a kid, when I was in school, I, I remember I won a, I, I won like an award for writing a short story in like second grade about a pair of gum chewing dice. And I I'll never forget about that because I was so proud of myself being seven years old and having written something that won an award. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I look back on that and I say, well, shit, I could have followed this path of being a writer full time and thinking that that was my bag because I obviously then went beyond that and continued writing as I got older and read a lot. I did a lot of Stephen King and Dean Koontz in high school, but it's like, for some reason, film was always just a big thing for me. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with, again, when I was raised, you know, being able to see the monster squad in the theater as a seven-year-old and Ghostbusters two as a nine-year-old or whenever that came out. And, and even some of the horror movies, you know, I saw Candyman in the theater when I was 12 years old and Terminator two and alien three. And 
So I didn't get to see a lot of the heyday stuff like Nightmare 3 and, mm-hmm. and any of the Friday 13ths. And the, I think the first Friday I saw in the theater was Jason Goes to Hell. Um, or no, no, That's Jason. Definitely. Um, but anyways, it's like that. There's, those experiences made mm-hmm. me who I am as a horror fan and as a storyteller. And so it would be it would be like a disservice to my fans and to the people watching my stuff if I didn't give them the same experience or try to give them the same experience that I got out of the movies that inspired me to be who I am. Um, sure. So, and, and something like The Muck, you know, that was simply a matter of saying, you know, it's an 80s style film, so I want it to have an 80s driven score and there's no dialogue in it. Literally the only audio other than the music and the sound effects is when my voice comes on as her husband on the answering machine telling her that I'm working late and so I won't be home for dinner. And other than that, she doesn't say anything. You don't even know her name is Laverne until, you know, I tell you that. So um, I just, I, I pictured, I modeled it a lot, obviously off of the raft and the blob, but the, 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 the construction of the the scene, the sequence of events that happen in the muck is more specifically based off of the scene in Ghostbusters when Sigourney Weaver comes home from working out and gets abducted by the chair of demon arms. And so, you know, to me, if it wasn't for her being on the phone with her mom, that scene would have no dialogue whatsoever. So I just had to find a way to work within the same parameters. And, and I think the way to, to solve that was making a music video. Yeah, no, and it definitely works, and it 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 sounds great. And then the obviously the end of the the short, which we don't want to give too much away, but it's gross and it's awesome, and it it plays upon fear of like you know of what's what's lurking in places we can't see, and that like I think really got me because that is something that like I've always been. You know, I was having a conversation earlier with some people, and I was talking about Lake Placid. Sure. Uh, my grandparents grew up on a lake, so we would we would go out and go swimming. And after Lake Placid, seeing Betty White get eaten alive by the alligator, I was like, "No, absolutely not! I'm not going into I'm not going to go into the lake because I can't see through the water, sure. and because there could be an alligator there." And you playing upon that fear at the end, and it's such a quick like we we get in, we get out, and I love that about that short. But you've done more than just shorts. And you mentioned earlier about how you did your your first film. Um, it's my party and I'll die if I want to. And now this is such an interesting thing for me. Uh, going through seeing it, going through knowing the history behind this. So you released your first film while attending Tom Savini's makeup and special effects school. And this was uh, so he had a couple locations. So my I have a friend who went there, but she went to one in I think in Tampa. Okay. And then there, there was one, I think, in Pennsylvania, which was where you attended. And most of, uh, from what I was reading, most of your crew that is part of the, the Scotchworthy Productions that you met there as well. Yes. At that time, Scotchworthy consisted of a lot of people from the, the Savini School in, in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Uh, the location of the funeral home that we shot in was an old house on the hill above where the school was. Um, that one of the other guys I went to school with, who was a friend of mine at the time had, he knew the guy who was renting it and, uh, was like, Hey, you know, there's this creepy old house. You should go take a look at it. We should make a movie there. And we both kind of came up with concepts to make a movie there. And ultimately I ended up moving forward and making mine and he didn't. And, um, and it's, yeah, I mean, every, that movie was very serendipitous because I, Looking back on it now, it should not have been finished for so many different reasons. And 
Um, I have to give myself credit for just the tenacity that I had at 25 years old to make a movie. And, uh, you know, I went through a pretty tough breakup at that point uh, with a girl that I thought I was going to get married to. And so, you know, it's like it was the same thing where I was I was in a position in my life where I started shooting it in October of 2005. I was 25 years old. I was in my third semester at the school and no one was shooting any video of any of their makeups. And I'm like, this is dumb. We're doing movie makeup effects and we're taking pictures of them in a well-lit classroom. Yeah. And so I, I came up with this concept to do this music video based on, you know, shot to thriller. And it would just be this calling card for all of us. And I got like seven friends who were going to partner with somebody and create a monster. And all these monsters were going to converge on this Halloween party and start killing all these kids. And it was going to be basically like Spookies meets Waxwork meets, you know, Thriller. And I just wanted to be like an ability for all of us to showcase our special effects talents. And it didn't work out. No one really ended up following through with their creature designs or anything. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go make this movie. Started. I shot like a weekend worth of content in October. And it, it was okay. I wasn't thrilled with it. It was like the, the daytime stuff of the girls walking down the sidewalk after school. So it was it was not, there was no texture to it there was no mood being set it was all very bland and I just wasn't thrilled and was worried about my own I had a lot of self-confidence issues sure. and so then I, I kind of went the next like month or two because we were coming up on holiday breaks and um, so the girls that were in the movie went to Seton Hill University which was nearby and they had a month off and you know, we had a weird trimester system with Savini School. So I kind of like just stopped making the movie for like two months, three months. And then after, you know, over uh, Christmas break, being back at home is when the girlfriend and I broke up. I got back to school and just kind of was like hanging out. And, you know, one night I was at this crappy little pool bar with my roommate, Steve, and was sitting there drinking a beer. And I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like... I, I went to this school, I moved away from everything I knew and the people I loved in Illinois for two years to, to, to see if I could do filmmaking, to be in the horror film world. And I am letting the opportunity go to waste, sitting here partying and having a good time instead of doing what I want to do and just, you know, just relying on myself to make it happen. And so... I did it. I manifested destiny, which is what I'm doing this year too, uh, which makes me very proud of myself because I'm seeing the results of that manifest your own destiny desire and, and work ethic. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, I, we got back to shooting. I got back, everybody back and organized again, and there were still a hundred thousand hurdles to overcome. Um, and when we were all done with principle, which was basically from like February to early April of 2006, we only had probably 60 minutes worth of a movie and the script was only 45 pages. But the cool thing was, is that it was a choose your own adventure movie. So I had all these different tangents that the characters could go down. And then when I built the DVD, I was able to create this, you know, tree, um, family tree is what I call it. Uh, so that would allow you as the viewer to navigate through all these different comic book panels that it's very creep show meets evil dead meets night mm -hmm. of the day for people in your audience who haven't seen it. And 
so I utilize that creep show comic book type of, of transition from one scene to the next to create these menus that people could then use their DVD remote to uh, go to different scenes that are not in the normal movie. And, um, and so I was really happy with it. And then we ended up spending two weeks worth of pickup shots, going back out to Pittsburgh from Illinois, working with the team to make, you know, additional death scenes. We got a bunch of the nudity in there. We got the cameo from Tom Savini at that mm -hmm. point. I actually had my friend Mitch Martinez come in who had just gotten a, uh, you know, some really good prosumer HD equipment. And so he actually having a, a cinematographer shoot the movie instead of me who had no experience with no equipment. Um, yeah, it just, it all ended up working out really well. And I'm very proud of what that movie did. Um, it won a lot of awards. Someone who likes trash cinema would appreciate the fact that it won the biggest accolade it got was winning the best feature award at the 2007 full moon film festival, which was curated by Charles band. It's amazing. Um, one of the, the, the judges who judged my movie was Stuart Gordon. Oh, so, I, so that that look you you're you're just yeah. crushing home runs at this point early yeah. in your career. I I think the big thing for me is going and looking that and it's I, look I mean doing a choose your own adventure film that's wild, right? Like that is not that's an ambitious project for any director to try to do. Yeah. Um where, where was the inspiration? I mean, like where where did you cuz I mean the you know, we'd previously had some choose your own adventure style before the film came out. Um, but this is obviously pre Bandersnatch, which is what a, a lot of people probably today think of when they think of like a choose your own adventure film. But I mean, we obviously in the eighties had things like dragon's layer and, and th you know, things of that nature, but like, where was your inspiration or was it just more of a, like a circumstance where it's like, Hey, this actually is going to fit to do this because that is not something I would have think that, especially for a first feature that you have made, like that's the route that you want to go down. Sure. I mean, that's a great question. And, and I don't even think anybody's ever asked me that in 20 years almost now of being on podcasts. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, so, well, I can certainly say that, uh, you know, when the funny thing is, is that as I was in post-production editing the movie is when Final Destination 3 came out mm -hmm. and the DVD of Final Destination 3 had a special feature that was a choose your own adventure version of the movie. And all they basically did, thankfully for my benefit, was they they like adjusted the way that the death scenes happened so that it was like you could I don't know if you could necessarily avoid them, but you could almost like arrive upon a death scene in a different manner. So it was definitely supplemental. It was not a, you know, additional piece that was. Um, almost more story and world building. It was just like, hey, here's this neat little thing that we did because we had a bunch of footage on the cutting room floor. And then subsequently, a few years later, I think they more successfully accomplished this on the Blu-ray of Return to House on Haunted Hill, which, it, which for someone who appreciates trashy cinema, I liked the remake of House on Haunted Hill a lot. Um, I think that that when that came out, it was it, it was just a really cool movie. It had a lot of great atmosphere and stuff. And so I was interested in seeing the second one. Second one has some redeeming qualities, not a ton, but some. But it does have the choose your own adventure aspect, which is pretty cool on the Blu-ray alone. Um, for me, my inspiration was I read the choose your own adventure books when I was a kid in, in like the early 80s. And I, I actually I want to like not forget about it. I'm going to jump on Amazon and see if I can find it because uh, my favorite was Space Vampires. 
And it was just, it was such a cool, fun book for a seven-year-old who could not read Dean Koontz and Stephen Koontz. Sure, sure. That was what I was reading. And I would, you know, I scoured that book and I stared at all the pictures in it because all those Choose Your Own Adventure books, there was a series of them in the 80s. They all had pictures in them, you know, like maybe seven pictures within like a 150 page book. And so, yeah, it was and, and I love the idea that like you could you could read and make a choice and you turn the page to 87 and it's literally a half a page. It's a paragraph of you getting killed. You know, you get sucked out into deep space or the vampire bites you and you're you're fucked. And it's like, damn it. Now I got to go back to where I was and start over again. And so it was just such a fun dynamic to tell a story and it gives the viewer that opportunity that video games have been giving people for the last 30, 40 years. And so um, I coupled that with my experience at that point of using Final Cut Pro and um, and like a lot of the Apple filmmaking stuff like DVD Studio Pro um, and iMovie even. I in using that to create just little simple projects at home. And when I was in college, my, my general education stuff, my undergrad work, I did some independent studies where I, I shot a short film about a killer clown, uh, which is very popular nowadays. Um, and this was back in 1999 or 2000, I think is when I made that one. So 20 years before terrifier came out, um, I did this, this killer clown short film and it was like, that was my crash courses. This is how you use Adobe Premiere because this is what the school has on their computer and it's all that they have. And we've got this, you know, Casio keyboard over here. So if you want to make a soundtrack for it, here's what you can use. Otherwise we have nothing else to use. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a lot of just ingenuity and, and using at the time in 2000 and 2001, there was no YouTube. So I had to read manuals and learn how to use it and just fuck around until I figured it out. And in doing that, I realized that you could use DVD studio pro to create different like menu tangents. And if you go to this menu, you can then use an option on that menu to go here or here. Mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh, well, cool. If I can do that at the beginning of the movie with the main menu and go in the chapters or audio or special feature selections, why can't I do that halfway through the movie? And so I yeah. did. It's an amazing, it's an amazing idea. And honestly, I think more, more films should do it. I know, I think it was uh, Francis Ford Coppola who did the, I think it was, um, I don't remember who the, the star was. The film was called Twixt. And like, he kind of had a similar idea where he was like, oh, we're going to, but we're going to do it live in audience. Okay. Like every filming, like every film showing is going to be a different version of the movie. And it was such an amazing idea. Unfortunately, that did not pan out, and the movie was just critically banned. And I mean, in theory, it works. Or in theory, it sounds great, but I think in practice, maybe not. But like yours does, and I think being on DVD, that is like an option that like you can pull that off. So I'm kind of curious now, like when it went to film festivals, was I mean, was it shown in a film festival? Were they able to do that, or was there like a specific cut that you had that was like, if you can't do a choose your own adventure version? Here is the like the canonical the the wash cut yeah so yeah. to speak yeah well and and it, I have to mention too because when you brought up Twixt it made me think of another another film that definitely inspired me in this regard was Clue I am mm, I am yeah. top top five movies for me is Clue 
And the, the, the fact that they had three different endings that depending on which screening and which theater you went to, you saw a different ending. I just love that. So yeah. very much off of that too. But um, yeah, well, obviously once I got all the supplemental content in those two weeks of pickup shots added to the movie, I at that point then had a feature length movie. It's only like 79 minutes long, but I had a feature length movie. And so I was able to submit that to all the festivals. And so the, the great thing about it was, is that in 2006, 2007, when it premiered, there were not a lot of independent horror movies at the time, you know, movies like cabin fever had come out and was a big success a few years prior. Um, and so there were independent movies. There was a really fun one called boo that was done by the guy who ended up going on to, I think, do the sharknado movies. Um, but it, it, it had, uh, it had, it was, it was a great concept. It had a couple actors in it. I know my friend, Rachel Melvin, who was in the rake, it was like her first role. Um, and, and so there were some independent movies that were out, but not a lot like there are nowadays because you didn't have access to prosumer equipment to make stuff. So I got into a good number of festivals with the movie, despite the fact that I made it for 15 grand. I didn't know how to, how to make it look good. I didn't know how to make it sound good. You know, it was all just me trying my best to make a movie and Luckily, it won a lot of awards and got us a lot of attention. And then I, I think I did a smart thing by then going to conventions starting in February of 2008 and started selling the DVDs. And that's where people realize, such as yourself, it's like you're talking to me and I'm promoting the movie and I'm telling you about how it's got to choose your own adventure on the disc as well as the regular movie. And so I think that horror fans being the, the type of nerds that we are, you're instantly intrigued by the opportunity to make this a game and an experience that you would want to share with a group of other people. And, and it's my party is definitely a game where you should, or a movie where you should be drinking and yeah. laughing and watching it. And don't take it seriously because it's like I said, it's night of the demons and night of the demons is a great movie. I love night of the demons. Clearly I made an homage to it, but it's not, it's not like a good movie. You know sure. what I mean? Like, like it's not Shawshank Redemption. So <laughs> that that is, I mean, one might say that Linnea Quigley is the the Tim Robbins, Tim Robinson or Tim Robbins of uh, of trash cinema. I, I mean, some might say me it being the one that might say it. But it's interesting you say that though, because like the film started pretty much, it wasn't feature length. Um, you have another film that's almost similar to that uh, called A Chance in Hell, and so. A normal short film, when at least a lot of people, I think, when they consider a short film, they think of something under 15 minutes, you know, something quick, you're in and out. However, A Chance in Hell is pushing 35 minutes. Yeah. And it it feels like a big budget movie that you just trim the fat from. Thanks. And I was very interested. It is honestly, it is a hell of a ride. No pun intended. Um, but it is for the audience, like it, I guess the best way to explain it and Tony could probably do a better job than I could, but it is, it's somewhat of like a monster Nazi monsters and war film. And it's, it feels big budget, but you went, it, what it, I get, guess what gets to me is like the 30 minute format. Cause like, you know, I guess like when you're doing a film like that, do you feel like a longer format for shorts is more optimal to flesh out a story? Or do you think it's like a case-by-case -case basis where you say, well, this story for me, 
I can tell this story in 15 minutes. Or is it like, hey, screw it. We're, if we're going to do it, let's let's give it the justice it deserves and let's build a world around this as well. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, again, another great question. Um, the, the, it was, as I was saying, is that it's just like every movie. Every movie is a unique experience. There mm-hmm. is no two movies that are produced and created the same way. And so with The Chance and L, it was, a, it was a product of its circumstances where I had been playing a lot of Call of Duty um, at the time that was World at War. I don't even think that that was even like the Black Ops games yet. Yeah. Where my buddy Johnny, who was the co-writer on A Chance in Hell with me, um, we were playing that game a lot with our buddy Kyle, who's the star of A Chance in Hell. And so we were just running through that game. And at the time, it was only like the three or four levels that were very basic. It wasn't like what Nazi Zombies is now on Call of Duty. Sure. Yeah, no, I remember. That was, for me, that would have been like end of high school or probably college at that point, honestly. Like 2009, 2008, Mm -hmm. 2009 um, is when we kind of started really getting into it. And so then in in 2010, well, it would have been in 2009 is when we were working on pre-production. So I had had, it's my party come out. It was successful. It won a bunch of awards. It got distribution. You know, I was taking it around to the conventions and selling lots of copies and people were finding out about it and it was becoming pretty popular. And so my cinematographer, Mitch Martinez, who had done the pickup shots with me for the one week, hit me up and he, he he's from Philadelphia and I'm in the Chicago suburbs. And so, you know, we're talking a good 13, 14 hours apart. And so Mitch called me up and he said, Tony, I just got a red one camera, which was the first of all the reds. It was this big freaking refrigerator of a camera that you had to carry around on your shoulder. And, but it shot 4k and it looked like a movie. And he's like, I've got this camera and I want to do something narrative. And so, you know, what, what do you want to do? I will come out for a week to Chicago and we will shoot whatever you want. Do you want to do like a proof of concept for one of your ideas. At the time I was working on um, not just the sequel to It's My Party, which is called You Would Die Too If It Happened to You. Um, I was also working on an anthology called Sweet Dreams, where I was going to resurrect this clown killer idea as one of the anthology episodes. Um, And so he's like, do you want to do one of those or do you have something else? And I said, okay, well, um, thank you for the the opportunity to, to help me make something let me get back to you. And uh, so I took a little bit to think about it, talked to my buddy Johnny and him and I had written and shot a short film that no one's ever seen. I've never released it just because I don't know why I'm 15 years past it at this point and just haven't edited it because I'm bored, you know, which I feel bad because him and I put a lot of, we were out in the middle of the woods in the middle of the winter shooting it. And he set himself on fire while we were shooting it accidentally. And so I, I feel bad that no one's ever seen it, but uh, whatever. Um, subsequently, Johnny wrote Skeletons in the Closet with me. So he's, and he wrote the feature length version of The Muck with me. So Johnny's fine. But um, so, yeah, so, so basically we were like, well, why don't we do a Nazi zombie short film? And I was a bartender at the time. And one of my regulars was this guy in his 70s who's been collecting World War II memorabilia since the 1960s. So he had like, I went down to his basement, came in, and he had like 25 rifles and machine guns and from World War II. He had, you know, M16s from Vietnam. He had uniforms. He had equipment, backpacks, helmets, boots, everything. 
hundreds and hundreds of things. And he's like, any of this that you want to use for a movie, feel free. So I was like, let's do it. And so we went to, we went, we found this location with this old factory um, that mostly was abandoned. So we were able to run around and kind of have free reign. And we only had eight days is what I convinced Mitch to come out and do. And then my friend, Chris Patrick, who um, was at the time, we went to Savini school together and then he stayed and became a teacher there. And so he had all the younger students that were his students that he would like kind of say, well, hey guys, why don't we go make a movie with my partner, Tony? And then you're getting real world experience and a credit as opposed to just doing shit in class. And so he was able to cherry pick the best students to help us. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we shot that in eight days. They were 18 to 20 hour days, 22 hour days at some points. I got an hour of sleep a night for eight days in a row. Um, and it was literally 13 years ago right now. Um, today is the day that I, after we finished shooting on the 7th of February, I slept from the 7th until the 9th and woke up for the Super Bowl and went with a bunch of the crew to the sports bar and watched Super Bowl and had Buffalo wings. And we were just, yeah, we were just That's like, well, amazing. yeah, we all just slept for like 32 hours. How's everybody <laughs> feel? Back to, back to reality. All right. That's awesome. You know, it's interesting you say that about the camera work and whatnot, because there's a, a scene Early on in the film, we get our opening intro where we kind of set the stage, we set the world, we kind of know a little bit about what's going on. It's very cool. It's all in German, which I thought was a really nice touch because uh, I feel like and it's one of those things that I feel like to me is immersion and breaking when you have a film set in a different country and you just have a British actor. Yeah. And it's like the Germans didn't speak with a British accent. Like, come on, guys, like let's, we could do better than this. So I thought it was a nice touch. But when when shit kicks off, you have your American troops and there is a almost like a, a found footage like feeling to it at a certain point where you're they're getting shot out. They're running and things are going crazy. And it is like it's almost like hardcore Henry in a sense that it is first person for like a solid, you know, few minutes. And like watching it, I'm like, this this is amazing, like especially for the time, you know, that the film you were filming it in. I'm like, that's. It's really cool, like how that, like how you pulled that off. Did you switch up the camera, or was that that they just like have to hold it at their ch like head, like eye length? Like how how do you shoot something like that? You'll have to get the DVD so you can watch the behind the scenes featurette and watch how we shot that. Because um, yeah, it was it was very much based off of just playing the game. Johnny and I and Kyle were like, we've been playing Call of Duty, which is a first person shooter for all these years let's let's incorporate that into the story somehow i don't want to make the entire thing first person shooter because the biggest problem i have with first person um point of views in movies is that there's no peripherals mm -hmm. and in my opinion the scariest way to to the, the best way to make a a true vr horror movie would be to utilize this part of your sight of vision because seeing something over here that scares you because you're like, what the fuck was that? You know, yeah. and you can't do that with with normal cameras. And so we we said, well, let's just let's just do a snippet of it. And we have to get the audience into what the actual story of this movie is going to be, which is these four American soldiers running away from and eluding these zombies, these monsters, the entire remainder of the film. Because the opening, like you said, it sets up the story and what's going on there. But the opening of the movie is a stark contrast in terms of theme 
you know, it's very dramatic yeah. as opposed to the second half is, or the second, the last two thirds of the movie are all very action packed horror. And so I thought that, that that was a really great way to, to dive into the, the switch in theme of the movie. Um, and I just, I really like the idea of like, you see that opening title and after the opening title comes in, then you have that moment of black where we're almost like giving the audience a chance to take a breath. It's like, they just saw what happened to with the doctor and the girl mm-hmm. and they're just like, Holy shit. And then the girl comes and, you know, does what she does to the soldier that she's with. And and the audience is going to be like breathing heavy. And it's like, give them a second to, to collect their breath and get back into it. And the pacing then really, I think, worked out because during that breath of fresh air, you're hearing things and they're getting louder and you're starting to realize something's going on. And then all of a sudden you're thrown in the middle of it as soon as that guy gets bit. And now it's what's happening and where are we at? And let's get our bearings. And you're trying to navigate the situation in the middle of the shit hitting the fan, which I think I'm, I've never been in a war before. I've never been in a crazy situation like that. I those those people are, are heroes and I don't know how they handle it, but like I wanted to do the best that I could to put someone in that situation. And after seeing movies like Saving Private Ryan, that's what you do is you, you up the shutter speed and you just make it balls to the wall insanity, yeah. you know. So yeah. That's amazing. Now speaking of shorts, and I, I'm kind of pivot here, but you are the curator for bloody bites on Screenbox, which any fan of, of Safe Trash Cinema knows we are hu- huge advocates for Screenbox. I think it's one of the best streaming services you can get out there. There, It is both in terms of originals with like Damien Leone's Terrifier, which we've mentioned, or even just some amazing trash cinema films that have been lost to time uh, are being resurrected for streaming. Now, you obviously have a love for the medium. I mean, you've done films a lot. You know, you've done a lot of shorts. You have an anthology film built out of shorts. Um, But I'm curious to know how you perceive the impact of shorts within the world of cinema and even more so how it pushes the horror genre forward. Well, I think it pushes the genre forward by finding the newest talent. You know, the freshest talent is out there making short films right now because it's hard to make a feature. And I don't recommend to anybody out there that's looking to become a film director or producer to, to do a feature length movie first, because it is, it is prone to fail because you have to get a dedication of time out of people that you're typically not going to be able to do. Now you look at something like Skinamarink, which I still haven't seen, but that it, from what I understand is a $15,000 feature, very much in the vein of, of paranormal activity um, or Blair Witch Project, where you have a very small group of, of characters in a isolated location overall. And, and that's how you're able to keep the budget down. And if they're enthusiastic people, whether it's your children or it's your friends or it's your fellow horror fans, that's possible. But when you're trying to make something like even It's My Party, to this day, I don't know how the hell we I had a finished film when it all was said and done. I don't know how the hell I didn't get into more arguments than I did with the cast and crew or, you know, find better ways to beg for them to give me things and do things for me to get the movie finished because I had 15 grand. Five of that went to buying the Canon XL2 camera I shot it on. And so that's the long answer. I'm very long-winded. The long answer is that to me... Any filmmaker should start out by making short films to hone their own craft of storytelling and to 
to, to, to understand what it is to, to take on the responsibility of making a movie. Um, so to me, it's, it's about networking. It's about meeting other filmmakers and, and other horror nerds that, I mean, I could do this all day. I was on the, I was on zooms all day today, talking to filmmakers about some stuff that we're developing for, for the channel. And it's like, this isn't work to me because it's, you know, and, and like right now I'm not at the point where, where it is a full-time job. And my wife even said that because I had to stop between two, two uh, Zoom calls to grab a, a bowl of soup and eat some food because I haven't eaten today. And she's like, you're not getting paid for this. Like you need to, you need to like take some time and like give yourself a break. And I'm like, I don't need a break. I love this. Like you have no idea how much energy I'm getting off of just being immersed in this world and doing what I love. Um, so to me, it's like, it's funny because I feel like so often people come to me and say, thank you for what you're doing for independent film. And, and I do get a lot of people who say it to me and it means so much because I've always wanted to consider myself to be a selfless person. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've often had, not often, but I've had people in my life tell me that I'm an asshole or tell me that I'm selfish. And I'm just like, because I'm confident because I, you know, because I, I come off as, as being assertive. You know, you think I'm an asshole because I stand up for what I believe in, or if I'm being taken advantage of, I'm going to defend myself. I'm an asshole. But, but sometimes, like I said earlier with the self-confidence issues, sometimes you start to get into your own head and you think, well, shit is, are these people right? You know, am I an asshole? Am I selfish? And so I, I like that there is that positive reinforcement from the community that tells me that what I'm doing with World of Death, which was the first iteration of Bloody Bites, and now Bloody Bites is, is selfless and good. And, and I'm fostering a community of independent filmmakers for the benefit of all of us involved. And so it's like there's that benefit for sure. But for me, it's all about just networking and about seeing what's out there and about trying to just just do it. You know, it's like because why not? No one else is doing it in you can look at Crypt TV and say, well, they're doing it, but they're doing it in a different manner. You can look at Alter and say they're doing it and they are, and they're doing it very well, but Alter is just a YouTube channel and, and Alter has its parameters. And I think that the great thing about what I'm doing now and what Bloody Disgusting has charged me with doing is to now dig into this community that I've fostered for the last eight years it's consisting of over 700 filmmakers, if not upwards of a thousand filmmakers and find those who are the most talented, who you think have the most integrity and tenacity and, and ingenuity and give us some concepts so we can go make some stuff. You know, we, we had the success of terrifier two that has now opened the gates for us to start creating original content. So start giving us some ideas for original content. And that's what I've been charged with. And I am, beyond excited about the position I'm in right now, the climate of what's going on around me and the, the group of, of what I'm calling my film family, my bloody disgusting family of filmmakers that I am currently working with to develop stuff. Cause it is fucking exciting. And the yeah. stuff that these people are bringing me that we are working on together. I haven't been as excited about spitballing. Like I have been for the last month in years easily in years and it has reinvigorated my enthusiasm for filmmaking and because i had a couple of pretty tough years after skeletons in the closet came out and high in the hog came out and the rake they all came out like 2018 2019 and 
just a big shift in my life, uh, you know, my personal life and, and what I was doing as a you know full-time job and my availability with filmmaking and, and being able to do it and devote time to it. Along with, as I said a few minutes ago, you know, having a handful of just bad experiences with losing friends and collaborators and stuff that people that I thought I was going to, you know, we were going to be playing cards and going to Bears games, you know, in our 70s and 80s. And, you know, here you are in your 40s and you're like, where the fuck did everybody go? You know, why did these people leave? And is it me or is it them? And I'm very thankful to finally be at a confident point in my life where I, I know who I am and I know what I'm capable of. And I know what I'm, I know that what I bring to the table for others to benefit them. And I know that ultimately those situations with those bad apples were them, not me. And, and that confidence has built my, not only my enthusiasm and, but it's reinvigorated, like I said, my energy level to, manifest my destiny this year and and make my life what I want it to be. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, I think that that's amazing. And, you know, staying on topic of, of shorts, I want to touch a little bit on your, um, on skeletons in the closet, which was my first film, my first experience with your filmmaking. Uh, so for the uninitiated skeletons in the closet is an anthology film, double wrapped in a story about a babysitter and the child she is looking after while also watching a television show, uh, about a widow and her dead husband, Charlie, as they parse through VHS style segments. So I'm curious about work, like the work on an anthology film, just in general, but more specifically with skeletons in the closet, you know, there's currently, I mean, listed in credits, you have three directors, you have multiple writers listed in the credits. How much creative control do you have over a project like that when there's so many different hands that are, you know, touching the creative process? Well, that film is, uh, by the way, I, I want to use your synopsis of it to deliver it to anybody who doesn't know it, because that was really great. I love double wrapped. That's a great term for the double wraparounds of it. Um it, like I said a minute ago with A Chance in Hell, Skeletons in the Closet is a product of the circumstances. In either 2011 or I, I want to say it was early 2012, um, my co-director on Skeletons in the Closet, Ben Lewandowski, um, he he approached me, cold called me uh, because we were mutually connected to Tony Lee Gratz, who is one of the soldiers at the beginning of A Chance in Hell, who dies mm-hmm. at the initial battle. Um, and... So Tony was like, ben, he knew that Ben was looking to create an anthology in the vein of VHS, where you're collecting films from different filmmakers and putting them together. And so he told him to reach out to me because he was very impressed with The Chance in Hell, as I think a lot of people were. That really upped the ante from It's My Party in terms of the technical quality of what Scotchworthy Productions was presenting to an audience. And so... So Tony told Ben to contact me. We end up talking and um, and he's just like pitching me this idea of, you know, I'm going to get together four or five different Chicago based independent horror filmmakers. And I want us to each put together a short film, 15 to 20 minutes long, as big of a budget or as little of a budget as you want about anything you want. It was very open ended. And the freedom of that was pretty cool. Because I was like, well, I can be a part of a feature and get that rolling. Because at the time, I had unsuccessfully raised a budget on Kickstarter for 
um, my feature length movie called The Storm, which is about roller derby girls fighting aliens from outer space, which was I'm glad didn't work out because there's no way that movie would have happened for the budget I was trying to make it for. It would have been a disaster. Um, I had unsuccessfully tried to raise money for It's My Party's sequel to be shot in 2009, and which the same thing probably was not appropriately budgeted based on my like small knowledge of budgeting. So I was just like really eager to be a part of something that was marketable, like a feature, um, which is what I love about World of Death and Bloody Bites is that I don't think that short films are marketable unless you package them. And mm -hmm. so I think Bloody Bites is a great way to package short films. Um, and Bloody Disgusting and Screenbox are the perfect platforms to showcase those to millions of horror fans across the world. So that being said, um, so we, we, I agreed to do it. I said, yeah, let's, let's make this happen. So I set out to, I reached out to Robert Patrick Stern, who is my, my go-to cinematographer at this point. Um, him and I had shot a teaser for the storm to put on the Kickstarter campaign. And he had a red camera and was just really, really good. You know, he was just phenomenally talented cinematographer and had a couple of guys who were his his camera and lighting team that all worked really well together so i reached out to him and i had this idea for grandma o'malley's pantry that i had had written for you know it was in that sweet dreams anthology that had the clown killer in it which i had been developing since i was in college so i said i'd really like to make this short because i just Grandma O'Malley's Pantry, in my opinion, is the best thing I've ever written at that time, especially. And so I was like, I need to make this. Um, and this is the perfect foray for it. It's 25 minutes long. Perfect. So Rob signs on and says, yeah, let's do it. So we start putting together pre-production. And so the first call was in like January or February. By Memorial Day weekend, we were shooting Grandma O'Malley's Pantry, which really impresses me again on, on the ability that we had to 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 pre-produce and develop that concept from page to, to to what's on screen in only three or four months um and and the team came together and did a really great job and and that movie had its issues just like everything but it turned out really well and i was very happy with it broad stroke mm -hmm. um and so then the there were two other filmmakers they made short films and coincidentally I think two or three of us went after Rob Stern to be the cinematographer. So we ended up ultimately partnering with Rob and at the time his partner, Chris Parker, who's now doing like all the Chicago fire and Chicago med sound design and everything. Like he's their onset sound guy. Um, and so they, they partnered with the four of us directors and the six of us went and made chop shop. And the idea was all of us have our short films, we put them together, and then we're good to go. After we all shot our shorts, which was now early 2013, we started thinking, you know, none of these movies have anything to do with each other. We need to create a wraparound content like VHS has to, to tie them all together. Otherwise, it's just, it's not an anthology at that point. It's just a short film compilation, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not going to be considered a feature. And so that's where the idea of Chop Shop came about with the first person, hardcore Henry perspective of, you know, this guy being processed through purgatory, which was this whole junkyard. And he's being told of his sins and explained why he's going to hell 
by the processor who originally we were going to have Sid Haig play the processor. Um, and I'm, I'm still kicking myself that we didn't just spend the money to get him to come out for the two days to do it because it would have been well worth it at this point. Yeah. I'm really mad that we didn't, but you live and you learn. Um, and so, and, and I love Rush Pearson, the guy who played the processor. He did a great job, but he's not Sid Haig, you know, let's be honest. True. Um, and so, so we did that in 2013, <clears throat> Rob and I co-directed that segment. So there's actually four directors in Skeletons in the Closet. So Rob and I co-directed the Chop Shop segment. And so now it's the end of 2013 and we're starting to put all this stuff together. And the other two filmmakers have edited their shorts. And Ben and I both have a version of our shorts that we like. Ben did the Dismantler, which is the two guys in the junkyard with the ghost story. And so we're like, okay, we're ready to go. And the the cool thing about the wraparound that we wrote was that it tied all four of the stories together, even though they never had anything to do with each other. And we allowed it to where this guy being processed through hell, you know, when he goes to the elevator and when he's in all these different scenarios, we had it where he like sees some of the characters from these other movies that are also being processed in purgatory. So that's how it's tying it all together, which is how we ended up doing it with like Meisner, the short film with the girl. Mm-hmm. She coincidentally, so that's that's Rian Owen, who's an actress. Um, at the time, she was my girlfriend. And we we got her to be in Chop Shop when she's sitting there with the TV and she's ripped in half in the camper. And then her and I started dating a few months later And while we were dating, she's like, Tony, I really want to make a short film. I want to direct. I want to see what it's like to be on the behind the camera instead of in front of it. And at the time we were developing World of Death. So we said, well, I had this idea for Meisner, the short film about this girl who's tied up in a basement from a serial killer or so you think. And it turns out all along that she's just she's rehearsing for a um, for an audition for a movie. And, and so it's like, I, I always really liked that idea. So I pitched it to her and said, it relies solely on you to be an actor and you can direct it too, because you're directing yourself. And she loved it. She loved the idea. So we went, we made it and it was almost like our, the, the film family's Christmas present to her was, we will shoot this movie with you and make it for you. And so we shot it in our basement in the house that we lived in, which is the same house I shot the muck in the same house that the living room for skeletons in the closet is where the little girl and the babysitter are sitting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and the kitchen as well, where she's making the popcorn. So we did all that stuff that was going to be separate. It ended up getting put on the back burner with everything else we had going on. Cause then we started making the rake and we were working on world of death. And so it all got put on the back burner. So now circa 2016, I released World of Death. We finished the rake and now our co-producers in LA who basically stole the movie from us, stole it and we weren't involved anymore. And so now here it is, it's 2017. And throughout the last four years, the other two directors from Chop Shop had said, you know what, we're going to take our short films and do our own thing with them. And so they released them. I think one of the guys started his own kind of series called Dark County. Um, with them and they were all going to be stories about you know um, like horrifying stories of people that take place all within the same small town midwestern county type thing and so now it's late 2016 and I've got world of death and the rake behind me and so now I'm going back to revisit chop shop 
and I'm talking to Ben and Ben and I were also editing um, High on the Hog together. And we had spent a number of months together editing the first draft of the rake, the director's cut, as I call it, um, which one day I'm still hoping people will get to see. And we were all those nights that we would be sitting at the, at the house working late editing. When we were done, we would go out to the garage and drink some beers and smoke a cigar. And he would smoke about 30 fucking cigarettes and we would <laughs> bullshit about stuff we would just talk ideas we would talk about music and and you know horror and and everything and movies and i one night i pitched him the idea that i had had in college of the widow and charlie your elvira married to the crypt keeper dynamic of a dueling host hostess horror show and so i said the great thing about this ben is we can take that concept that I've been wanting to make in some format for 20 years now, 15 years at that point, and we can make that the symbiotic, you know, the, the wraparound that, that allows, allows us to release these movies. And he's like, that sounds really cool. And I said, all right, we're going to co-produce it. We're going to co-direct it, which is just the wraparound stuff, you know, the remainder that we have to do. We include both of our shorts. We will edit it together. Johnny and I will write all the stuff because Johnny's got a good, quick-witted humor. Um, plus, he's married, and I wasn't at the time, so he understands the dynamic of a married couple better than I do, um, which I wanted it to be very Peg and Al Bundy, and anybody who's been married for longer than, I don't know, a year or two has a Peg and Al Bundy relationship with their spouse, I think. Um, and so... Yeah, so it just I we went and talked to Rob and I pitched Rob and my friend Jim Peterson, who whose house it was that Rob and I lived in at the time. The three of us shared this house and everybody was on board with it. Surprisingly, they were like, yeah, let's do it. We don't have any money. None of us are getting paid, but we will you know, make the movie happen. And um, and so in early 2017, we shot the Widow and Charlie stuff. And then a month later, we shot the stuff with the babysitter and the little girl. And um, and then we also talked to Rian and said, hey, you know, we want to include Meisner in this because we think it gives us an extra five or six minutes. It's going to feature your short film on a better platform than just releasing it through World of Death would. Um, and so, yeah, so we and it helps us because it's a female director, you know, which I, th I think is important to have that demographic representation, to sure. you know. Um, so, yeah. So, so then we, we ended up at Ben and I edited it and, you know, he did all the heavy lifting with the editing in terms of the technical end of it, but we very much collaborated on the edit and then got the movie out there. And, and, you know, I'm very happy that it allowed me to utilize the, the widow and Charlie idea I'd had in my head for as long as I did. I'm glad that it finally got the grandma O'Malley's pantry out there. I'm glad that it showcased Rian's short film because I thought that that was a pretty unique idea. Um, that a lot of people who like art house cinema are a really big fan of. And, uh, and yeah, I'm just, I, you know, I was very happy to have another feature under my belt, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned before, you mentioned Sid Haig, you mentioned high on the hog. And that's one of my questions I have. So the last feature that you've released is high on the hog and you got to work with some trash cinema alums, such as Joe Estevez from the roar blade seven beach babes from beyond one of my personal favorites, Robert Zadar from Samurai Cop. And honestly, one, one of my favorite horror films of all time, Maniac Cop, 
with Bruce Campbell, as well as Captain Spaulding himself, Sid Haig from Devil's Rejects House of a Thousand Corpses and many, many other films. How was it shooting a film with such beloved character actors on set? I mean, you're working with legends, right? Yeah, I mean, I... It was uh, it was a very thankfully I'd had the experience of working with Tom Savini prior to that so that helped, um, and you know I wasn't originally brought on as the director of High in the Hog originally my friend Jason Kane and I were hired to do the special effects in the movie, and then after a, like a month of them working on development, and um, uh, the the producer who had been at the a Chance and Held premiere. Um, which was a awesome experience with like 750 people in the audience. I mean, we sold the theater out. It was huge. And I think she was so impressed with what I did with that whole scenario, the presentation of the movie, as well as the production of the movie and the people that supported it. Um, she continued calling me and asking me about like, you know, advice on producing the movie. And finally, after the third like hour and a half long phone call, I'm like, are you are you like going to give me a consulting producer credit and like a, an ownership point on this? Or are you looking to have me direct this? Because honestly, I'm at the point now where I'm putting in all this extra time and I'm not getting anything out of it. Sure. And she's like, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about asking you to direct the movie. And I'm like, well, I would love to, because at the time I really wanted to have another feature length credit under my belt. And I had turned down another movie that I was offered the chance to direct that had like no money behind it. And I'm glad I didn't do it. But at the same time, I was like regretting, was that a bad decision to not go and make another feature? Um, and so I was like, yeah, if the executive producer is on board with it, let's do it. And so she went and talked to the executive producer. He wasn't happy with the current director either, who was not putting any attention into talking to the department heads or anything to organize pre-production. And so they said, yeah, we'll do it. And so, you know, it was an opportunity and that's all it was. It was not a good paycheck. It was not a, the, the shooting situation initially was terrible. Um, you know, like I remember three days in sitting down with the executive producer and the producer and saying, look, if you guys don't start feeding your cast and crew better, if you don't start taking better care of everybody, you are going to lose this movie a week from now. I'm telling you that from experience. I know these people are going to stop showing up. Um, and so, you know, they started, they started listening to me and I really appreciated that. And so from there it just built. And on the fifth day, that producer had a nervous breakdown, walked off set because no one was listening to her and she wasn't commanding any respect. And from there, the executive producer who was not on set cause he was working his full-time job called me and was like, what, what can we do? And he had already talked to the guy whose property was the farmhouse and um, and they talked to Sid and basically the guy who owned the house, Bob and Sid and myself and Robert Patrick Stern, the four of us said, if you make all of us producers on this, we'll finish the movie for you. And so on that fifth day of shooting, Sid and I stood up in front of the entire group of cast and crew and said, hey, guys, here's what happened. Here's what's going to happen with your support. We're asking for you all to give us two more shoot days because the producer was also in the movie as an actress. And so we had to recast her on the spot and bring in a new actor to play her character and reshoot a handful of scenes, including her death scene. Oh, wow. Um, she's the one who gets her head, you know, mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, and so 
we um so we we basically we got everybody enthusiastically was like yes we are on board let's make this happen and so it was really awesome to have that and so going into it it was a clusterfuck and it was a shit show and it scared the shit out of me because I worked for an advertising company and my boss was a director who was the first onset experience I ever had where um, he did a, a really low budget shot on super 16 millimeter film that, um, that, that just, it wasn't very good. And, and, but it was a great experience to have to be on that set. And so subsequently many years later, he offered me this job working for this advertising company with him and he had shot a second feature after the one I worked on with him that had Joe Estevez in it. And he just talked about how bad of, of an experience it was working with Joe Estevez and Robert. And I think just he clumped Robert Zadar into it because both of them were friends. They were kind of a package deal in a lot of situations with independent movies where it's like, oh, well, you can pay me this much money or you can pay this much more and get both of us, you know? And, and at the time, I think both of them were dealing with some struggles with substance abuse and alcohol sure. and stuff. And so he was just giving me this, ex this, this explanation of like, and I had quit the job like four months prior um, and left him stranded because I was doing a lot of the work and he was taking a lot of the credit for it. And so I quit that job to make movies full time. And, mm -hmm. um, and so he was still renting my camera from me for these commercials for the ag company and the, the week before we went to shoot High on the Hog, I remember he came over to my house to rent the camera from me. And he's like, he's like, I wish you the best of luck. But and it was like that half assed like, I'm not really wishing sure. you the best of luck. I'm sure. actually telling you, you know, good luck, but it's going to fucking suck. Yeah. And, and so it was like he was just like, you know, I'm, I'm warning you about them. And so I went into it very concerned about how much of a situation this was going to be. And it was the exact opposite of that. Um, Robert Zadar is one of the kindest people I've ever worked with. Um, that man was just such a big, you know, they say teddy bear when yeah. he's a big dude. He was so loving and gentle and kind and, and enthusiastic and supportive of every single thing and every single person that he worked with on that movie. Um, God rest his soul because he was just an amazing person to work with. Um, he was only on set for three or four days, but he was just a gem. And I, I made a lot of amendments to the dialogue and the characters. And a lot of it we had to reshoot and like rework um, because 10 days into the movie, I, I always tell this story because um, it's one of my favorite stories of, of making movies for 20 years is uh, so anybody who's heard me on another podcast is going to have heard this story a million times. But my favorite story from that movie is that on the ninth day of shooting, we were getting we had to add to our shoot day because we had to get scenes that we'd already shot with the other actress. And now we're replacing her and we were losing light at the end of the day. And so my my cinematographer, Rob, and I were just a little frustrated and we had to end end with what we had gotten. And I don't know if we were either happy with what we had. And this is also subsequently the scene that I'm most proud of because I gave Sid Haig. I can say that I gave Sid Haig a Captain Spaulding type of, of phrase to say that he when he says um, he's like talking to the girls at the chicken coop and he's like, 
and they're like getting the girl's name wrong and they're all like named L it's like Lenore and, and um, Lucy and, mm-hmm. and I forgot the other one's name. Um, and so he's just like another fucking L name. God damn it. I can't handle any more L names. He's like, it's hotter than a butt cheek sandwich out here. I'm going to go fishing with my new fishing lure. And I will <laughs> never, I will never be able to, not brag about the fact that I gave Sid Haig a coined phrase. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And he delivered it with grace in the typical Sid Haig style that you would hope. Yeah. Um, and so after that scene was done, Rob and I were just like frustrated. And I always tell this part too. Sid used to, he in, in High in the Hog, he plays Big Daddy. And he's always mm-hmm. wearing these overalls, these yeah. cheap overalls. And he used to always change out of them in the middle of just the open field or in the middle <laughs> part of the house. And so he's in his tidy whiteies in front of all these people and he just doesn't give a fuck, you know. And the wardrobe girl was a girl and he's just doing this, you know, and she didn't care, obviously. And so I'm walking up to him. We're at this farmhouse and I'm like, hey, Sid. And he's like, what's up? And he's got his overalls down. And I'm like, I'm like, you want to go get a beer? And he's like, fuck yeah. And so we go back to the motel down the street. We change, we get ready. Him and I get together with the executive producer's friend. Mike was down kind of being Sid's like assistant, you know, anything Sid Mm -hmm. would do it for him. And he was there a few, you know, like maybe a week or two of the production. So the three of us, he drove the the three of us to this bar in, in Elizabeth, Illinois, this hole in the wall bar. Um, and we drank bush-like cans. And Sid just told me about his 60-year career of, of making movies and what it was like working with, you know, in, in the James Bond movie and working on, on the original Batman with Adam West and being in MacGyver and, and just all these things that you're just like, Jesus Christ, this guy was in the original Star Trek TV show as a bit character for an episode. Like, Sid Haig is so much more than you think of Sid Haig when you think of Captain Spaulding. You know, um, and it was just it was a tremendous experience. And so, you know, and him and I were good friends after that for a number of years. I used to sit at the conventions with him and help him take his money for and, and you know, take pictures of him with his fans and stuff. And he he had such a, a love from the, the community, the horror community that, um, you know, I know how how hard it was for the community when he when he yeah. passed away. Um, and for those of us who knew him well on a personal level. He was just a good person. I, I wish I still had it for the longest time. I had a, a voicemail from him on my birthday one year in like 2015, where he called me and said, Hey, happy birthday, you old fart. I hope you're doing well. And it's just, it's like, this is fucking Sid Haig wishing yeah. me happy birthday. It, it meant the world to me. And, um, and so, yeah, so between him and Robert Zadar, I'm thankful that Sid at least got to see the movie. I don't think Robert ever did. Unfortunately, um, but I'm very proud of what we created with that movie in the end. I think that it turned out great. And Joe Estevez was great too. You know, Joe Estevez was a bit more of an attitude. He's a bit of an ego. Um, sure. And that's fine. You know, I mean, you're fucking Joe Estevez. Like you're yeah. to have an ego. But it was really funny because my story with him is that, <clears throat> and once again, another person who grew from his bad phase in his life. He he has he has salvaged himself to be a very responsible and to a large degree, respectful actor in the community. Very, very much like uh, Clint Howard, where it's like, yeah. you've been in so many different things. You deserve respect for that alone, you know? 
um, kind of like Linnea Quigley, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're 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 officially part of STC. We're talking Woo! about Linnea Quigley. <laughs> um, and, and so yeah, so basically, uh, my first experience with him was the third day of shooting. So I'm walking on the set, and we're shooting at the farmhouse where the chicken coop and everything was, which is different from the house that was Sid's big brick house. Mm-hmm. And so I walk on the set, and everybody's already there. And I walk up to this little, they had like, I don't know if it was like the, the old helper's shack or whatever, but it was like this little bunkhouse that was literally like a cute little one-bedroom cottage with a front porch, sure. covered front porch, and like like there were like four bunk beds in it, you know? type of thing it was super cool it was like airbnb before airbnb was a thing and but it was like really rudimentary with the plumbing and stuff and so that was like the not only the production hub and that was where like costuming and and everything was situated and hair and makeup was on the front porch i think and so i'm walking in to see what's going on and that's where our cold breakfasts were sitting on one of the bunk beds in fucking styrofoam just like stewing in their own sweat you know, which is why I the later that day had the conversation with the producers to fix everything. Um, and Joe Estevez was coming out as I was going in. And it was like, so like the door kind of situation was kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of those things where I let him go out and then I went in. And you could kind of tell that he had this bit of an attitude of like, you know, yeah, you better hold the door for me on the start of this movie. You know, Um, and and Joe was very much like that, where he always wanted to get the last word in. If you watch some of the edits when him and Sid are arguing, Mm -hmm. Joe would always try and throw one more line at Sid. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Which which was such a fun dynamic to work with and to direct. Um, and, And so it's funny because after that moment, then and this was actually the scene is where. Sid and the and and the family, uh, you know, I kind of compare them to like the Manson family, but not mm-hmm. as violent and psychotic. You know, his family—they're all at the pig pen, figuring out which pen Lenore is going to pick the the pick the pig to kill for the barbecue. And she's like, "I don't want to," yada yada yada. And then Joe Estevez drives up in his black suburban, gets out, and he's like, "You know, Agent Dick," you know, and and. So that was the first scene I worked on with Joe Estevez is Joe contesting with Sid. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how do I, how do I compete with these two Mecca personalities of horror, you know? Yeah. And luckily they did a really great job in the scene. They had a mutual respect for each other, but I walked up to set and I, and I don't know if someone told me like, all right, Tony, you know, what's, what's going on or, or if I kind of said something to like initiate, And Joe walked up to me. He's like, Hey, you know, I'm Joe Estevez. He's like, if I would have known you were the director, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come out of the, I wouldn't have expected you to hold the door for me. Like I did. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, look, dude, you should have treated anybody on this set with respect. I don't care if I'm the director or if I'm the executive producer, or if I'm the PA, you should be nice to everybody here, you know? Um, But it was just very funny that he instantly like changed his demeanor with me. And 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 there were there were definitely moments where there was some some personality conflicts with some people that he had to work with on the set. But at the end of the shoot, when we finished working with him, um, not only did people say that it was like he grew to be very supportive and um, respectful of the team because I think he 
he truly believed that we were making something special with that movie. Sure. And he actually told the executive producer that because we were shooting in Galena, Illinois, which is about three hours west of of like O'Hare Airport in downtown, you know. And so the executive producer came out and picked up Joe to drive him to the airport when he was flying back to California after he finished shooting. And in the car ride back, Joe said to the executive producer, he said, I'll tell you what. I love this movie because you you literally have lightning in a bottle between your, you've got Sid, you've got Robert and I, and he's like, I don't know if he called him Bob or Robert. I don't remember, but, and then he's like, um, and he's like, and Tony and Rob, as in Robert Patrick Stern, the cinematographer, he's like, you have lightning in a bottle with this movie. And so I, I'm just, I'm so glad that we impressed him and that we earned his respect because, you know, I don't think that people should be a jerk to other people, especially sure. if you're working together and you're going to be working together for a month or at all. But I also just think that like, if you're in his position, I get it. You know, yeah. I understand that you've been doing this for a long time. So yeah, it was all in all, it was fucking great. And <clears throat> I'm very proud of that movie. I, I'm very disappointed in, in how the, the, um, how the the story of that movie ended i'm very disappointed with it with its release with its its uh, you know with its support at this point to date with sure. my lack of supporting it if you want to put it that way just cuz we're i feel like i'm kind of digging into more of the the beef of it all you know um mm-hmm. the beef of making a movie um but like i said i i have the ability to say that i worked with some of the screen legends in my opinion in the genre and a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And all I wish is that I was being respected as the director and producer and co-writer of that movie. And in a lot of ways, the co-editor of that movie um, to be given the opportunity to promote it and, and, you know, give and be given the love that I gave that movie for all the years that I did um, with the community that I've fostered in terms of conventions and promoting it with Screenbox and bloody disgusting and trying to even get it on the screen box and, so it's just tough. But sure. at the end of the day, like I said earlier, there are there are personalities that you have to learn to work with. And if you can't work with them, uh, ultimately, you know, sometimes things don't work out and you learn lessons the hard way sometimes. Sure. No, totally, t- totally understand that. And I have to say, I enjoyed the film myself. Um, you could definitely tell that there is a, a definite energy on set and regardless of who it is that's there, it definitely is conveyed and you know i've met sid haig or met sid haig a few times over the course through conventions and whatnot and uh the first time i actually interacted with him was in the bathroom of a convention i was standing in the urinal had no idea i was just sitting there i had a friend of mine was in one of the stalls and i yelled over to him and i said tootie fucking fruity and i just hear this gruff voice next to me in in the like the stand-up urinal next to me here you so, said that's your friend you were saying I was, yeah i was yelling it over to my friend and uh, i hear this gruff voice next to me and he just goes <clears throat> son that's not how you say that line it's duty fucking fruity ah. and i look over and it's sid haig and yes. i i what do you say in a moment like that i just look at him and i'm like i love you <laughs> what do you say <laughs> i don't know what to say it's just you're just like it's Sid fucking Hag. You're just yeah. I, I, like you know. I and I don't know. I mean, I I think for me, like Sid Hag is. I mean, one, he is an icon, right? And uh, whether it's my first experience with him, unbeknown to me, 
was actually George Lucas's film. I think it's uh, the the THX. I don't know. I don't know you know, the, however you say that title. It's eleven thirty eight. Yeah, it's just, it's a string of numbers. Uh, honestly, not a great title, but uh, you know, I didn't even realize that was Sid Hagen that film. And then also realizing, to your point, the man was in so much yeah. and. You know, whether or not we consider Miss Captain Spaulding, which I think a lot of people do, myself included, because the first real moment for me, like knowing his name, knowing that face was House of a Thousand Corpses yeah. and him peddling his world famous fried chicken. Yeah. And you're just like and, you know, he's such a like has such a magnetic personality on screen. And then you meet him in real life and you realize he has that exact same personality in real life and just so down to earth. But to the same point, though. I think that that's the one thing about, you know, we live, I live in Atlanta, which is like a budding movie making place. Like we, a lot of tax incentives and everything. So Marvel films are made here and you go down to downtown, doesn't matter where you walk. I mean, we currently have right next to the office I work in where we have the, the new Francis Ford Coppola film. And so people are reporting like they're running into Adam driver and they're running into Audrey Plaza, just hanging out at the bar, like in downtown Atlanta. And you're like, Oh shit. But like, those people I would have found over the years is those people have way less attention to the people around them than horror people in the horror community. Like they're much more humble. They're, they're much quicker to sit down and have a chat with you. You know, I've met Bill Mosley so many times and every time I, you know, ended a convention, you see Bill Mosley. He is very quick to be like, let's chat, let's chat, let's talk. Damien Leone is another perfect example of just in David Howard Thornton art. The clown is just, just beautiful people with with just awesome energy and really just they're they're humble and they they love what they do and then they love the people who love the work they make and it's so cool to me well i think that i think a lot of that has to do with and and i'm not i'm not saying that people like adam driver and he's not even an example because i don't know how he is in real life but like any of those people you know, I met, I worked on Road to Perdition for a very brief moment in college when it was shooting in Illinois. And I met, um, I met Jude Law and he was a very nice person who talked to me for five minutes and did not have to. And I was five feet from Tom Hanks for like two days and never worked up the courage to at, to talk to the man. But it's like, when you see people in those situations, I think that they are superstars and it's so hard for them to go anywhere without having people yeah. bugging them. When I was at the Stanley film festival in 2014 with the muck, um, Elijah Wood was there with Spectre vision, his production company. And he had a string of like, like the Partridge family following him around the entire convention. He would go out and smoke a cigarette and three people were following him out to smoke a cigarette with him. And it's like, I understand why they're a little more standoffish sure. in that regard because they want their privacy and they want to live their life. But at the same time, God damn it, you wouldn't have what you have, all the luxuries and pleasures that you have if it wasn't for all these people who support your career, whether they're directly or indirecting it, indirectly supporting it. And that's what I love about the convention circuit is that I truly feel like the, the celebrities that attend the convention circuit understand firsthand how important fans are to their success yeah. and and so yeah the, the perennials on the the convention circuit like the bill mosley's they know that 
that it helps to foster that relationship with their fans. And, and I'm not famous, but even like, the, just look at you, you walked up to me and you fucking remembered me after three years. And I was like, keep your backpack with all of your beer. <laughs> yes. Which by the way, thank you for letting me do that. Well, and you said you had back problems. I was like, what the yeah. fuck are you lugging a case of beer around for? No. Well, I mean the, the, you know, I'm not going to say self-medicating with beer helps, but Okay. Also, you know, when in Rome, you can, but when in Rome, drink Yingling, not High Life. Next time, if I'm in Atlanta, you better fucking have a case of Yingling on your back, and you better share okay. them with me, and we'll keep them in my. Hey, booth, all right. In my in my defense, I did offer you a High Life, which I I mean, you know, if you're in Illinois, I, I mean, you're not too far. You're not too far away. I'm it's just saying. Champagne. It's the champagne of beer. It's the, it's the shit. And I offered. You said you were having dry January. So I don't feel as bad. I don't feel right. as bad. But I will make sure next time I will stock up on some yingling. No shame in that. I'll right. definitely bring you some. But we're kind of wrapping down, coming to the point that we get to where I ask all of the guests, everyone that comes on here, that I have the luxury to talk to. If you had to choose one film, one trash cinema film that you could save, what would it be and why? You know, when you when you pitched that to me in the email, I was like, <laughs> I don't even know. Because often I get asked, what would you remake if you could remake a movie? And I've started honing that answer because I feel like people always tap into the classics like, I, I used to always say Night of the Creeps, and I would still love to remake Night of the Creeps. But there are so many bad or poorly produced horror movies from my childhood that I wish I could remake and give them the justice that they deserve. Um, so now thinking about it from this perspective, it's like, okay, what would be considered trash cinema? And based on what you said earlier, and I don't remember exactly how you worded it, I don't consider this movie trash cinema based on what you're saying. I think that this movie is a lesser known, lesser popular horror movie because it's not lower budget. It's just, it's, it's kind of obscure to a large degree. Sure. Um, it falls under the, the mainstream vibe because it's foreign. It's an Italian horror movie, okay. um, but it's created by one of the maestros of Italian horror, gore horror. Lucio Fulci. Okay. Uh, and so it's House by the Cemetery. I think All right. uh, for someone who my favorite genre, subgenre of horror is creature feature haunted house. Um, house by the Cemetery is basically both of those put into one. It's very much like what It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To is. Um, and it's not a good movie. It, it makes It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's it's kind of poorly told. The special effects are super duper hokey. The bat that the guy that the husband has to like stab with the pencil or whatever. It's just like yeah. this is so terrible. And the little boy, Bob, Bob, no, Bob. <laughs> it, it's just you know it's such a bad movie. But damn, do I love it so much because it has everything in it that I love. I love tits and ass in an eighties horror movie. I love blood and guts in an eighties horror movie. I love a scary location and atmosphere in an eighties horror movie. I love graveyards and cemeteries. You know, give me, give me phantasm too. Give me phantasm. Give me night of the creeps. Give me that shit. You know, that makes thriller so much fun. And that makes, you know, American werewolf so much fun and, and all that stuff that we grew up loving. 
Um, so yeah, that's House by the Cemetery for sure. You know, I, I love that you brought that up, and I do love that you 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 pointed that. The conversation we had, which was actually off air, uh, was that we were talking about like what defines trash cinema, and it's something. Uh, it's, it's just it's a beautiful. Oh, that's a but, great a great cut. So for the obviously we're an audio podcast, but he's oh, got yeah, a beautiful right. Blu-ray. Oh no, you have a beautiful Blu-ray cut of special edition of House by the Cemetery. But I think the thing yeah. is with trash with cinema. The- with the footage that was that was cut from it originally, this has the uncut footage in it. That's even cool. absolutely even better. And like, but to your point, right? It's it's so trash cinema is it's para cinema, right? It's not it's not always going to be terrible, but it's not always going to be good. More often than not, it's not good. Um, but it's something that does something different, right? Something that's just unique to what it is. And I feel like Fulci, especially Fulci was kind of like on the forefront of that of like no fucks given filmmaking of like sure this movie might not make any sense at all in terms of its narrative focus but like we're gonna have a, it by the time you're done this movie you're gonna be just grinning from ear to ear because it's just batshit crazy yeah and i think like house by the cemetery is one of the the perfect perfect examples of that and i i'm glad that you shared that with me because i do agree with you it's very underrated it definitely deserves much more love than it's gotten. Well, and I, the fun thing about it is that, like, I, I also love the Beyond, and I love Zombie because who doesn't love Zombie if you're a horror fan? But and and I, I think that everybody thinks of Fulci as Zombie because that's probably arguably his most popular film. But I know that's how I was introduced to him. But similar to Argento, I feel like they are so like lumped into the Jalo. Yeah. You know, idea where it's like the Italian, you know, high, um, uh, highly stylized slasher films from the 70s and 80s and even mm-hmm. late 60s, if you think about it. Um, and so what I love so much about House by the Cemetery is that it's it's a it's a, a it's got the derivative elements of a slasher in it. But it's so much more than a slasher, and it has that element that the the beyond has in it of the supernatural terror that I really like about it. And so, yeah, I mean, you could look at like, you could look at a movie like I love Shockwaves. I love Shockwaves. Mm-hmm. I hate Shockwaves because Shockwaves is not a good movie. If they would have shot Shockwaves at night, and if they would have spent time, and I know that that production had problems. Um, like half of the movie has no audio and shit like that. So it's all like 80 yard. So, but if that movie would have just been shot at night instead of during the day, think of how much scarier shockwaves would be and how much cooler of a movie it would be. So, and it's got a great soundtrack. I have that on vinyl. I absolutely love it. So you could look at a movie like that and say, that's a trash movie I'd want to save, but it's, it's still not a good movie. Whereas house by the cemetery, I think has a lot of elements that are good. Um, but I love the way you describe trash cinema, because to me, there, there's a lot of examples of trash cinema that I think when people hear trash cinema, they think that means it's a bad movie, but you love it so much because it's bad, like killer workout or rocktober blood death spa, Um, which (laughs) if you haven't seen that one, that one is insane. But I honestly, I think a lot of early Cronenberg is oh yeah, fresh cinema. You know, you look at Rabid and Shivers mm-hmm. specifically. Shivers, yeah, yeah. My favorite Cronenberg film is easily The Brood, and The mm. Brood is a great movie. And he actually started getting budget at that point, but there's so many elements of it that are still low budget and independent and trash. 
And I love it. Absolutely love it. You know, even Scanners is trash cinema to a large degree. You know, shockingly enough, the first Cronenberg film I saw was Scanners, which is probably the weirdest Cronenberg film to jump into because it's like two and a half hours long. No. Naked Lunch is the weirdest. Okay, fair enough. Naked Lunch. I actually attempted to read William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch one time, and uh, it is completely incomprehensible. So the fact that Cronenberg was even able to make some sort of narrative out of that book is honestly is astonishing. But I can't disagree. I mean, and that's the thing, right, is what I think the biggest draw of trash cinema is the it's the the pleasure afterwards of like that feel good moment, that charm. Right. There's always a charm to it. And then you walk away just being like, you know, this movie might not have been fantastic or this movie might be fantastic. But if there's something about it that just has that charm to it, that's like I had a really damn good time watching this. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. especially movies that you can bring your friends along for and like introduce your friends while having a watch party, like it makes it even better. And, um, you know, I think that's it. That's, that's where it all lies and like why I love it. And, you know, why I think we do what we do now, Tony, we're at the point where I want to open up the floor to you for you to plug anything you want. If you have upcoming projects, you have anything that you've got in the works you want to talk about. You want to promote your socials. You want to promote your other films. This is the time for you. To, to open your heart and let the people know where they can find you, where they can support you and the things that you have in the works. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, so you can, my website is scotchworthy.com. Um, I really think I should have sh- thought of a, a better name for my company that, that is easier to say and people know. Um, but scotchworthy is like a bottle of scotch and worthy, like we are not worthy, all one word. Um you can go on there and, and there's a store that's got all the merchandise. So you can pick up pretty much all the movies on there, um, which is, is I think the best way to not just watch my stuff, but support us, you know, which we obviously appreciate, um, you know, independent filmmaking is not possible without the support of a community um, around us. And uh, so I think that's the biggest thing. And, and, you know, listening to what you say, the compliments that you've fed uh, of my catalog I, I hope that your audience listens and says, well, shit, you know, it's worth me going and buying a single movie and checking it out for myself. But you can also, if you're not looking to support me because you don't want to spend 20 or 30 bucks on a movie, fine. Um, you can also go to Tubi. You can go to Amazon. Uh, as you said, on Peacock, the rake is on there. Um, so there, the movies are streaming in different areas. If you want to watch High in the Hog, I think you have to rent it on Amazon. Mm-hmm or other platforms. I don't have copies of that myself. Um, but uh, but that's not a horror movie either. Like, I think if your audience is trash cinema, even though it is exploitation, I feel like more of your audience is probably horror fans. Um, maybe not, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that's out there too. And then in terms of bloody disgusting stuff, you know, my work with Screenbox, if you have a Roku, go to the Roku channel and find Bloody Disgusting TV, which is being rebranded Screenbox TV in like a week, um, actually next week from today. Um, if you have a smart TV like Vizio or TCL, I believe you can find Blade Disgusting TV on your smart TV's tele- uh, TV platform. Um, I know that Bloody Bites, the show that I curate with Bloody Disgusting, is on Pluto On Demand. It is on Sling. I've heard, I know it's on Tubi as well now. Um, 
So you can find our stuff pretty much everywhere. And um, I'm really excited because Bloody Bites, we're working on a new branding for it. We're going to reshoot the intro for the show. And uh, we've got new poster artwork that's in the works that'll be hopefully done in the next like week or two. And I'm really, really excited with the new branding that we're going for. The The mood and the atmosphere of it is just so freaking cool. And the imagery is really solid. Um, so I'm hoping that that's going to have more people drawn to um, you know, to, to being a, a part of our audience. Um, and then the, the next thing on the docket at this point from the sound of it is that Bloody Disgusting has tasked me with bringing them or concepts for original shows for Screenbox TV and Screenbox, the streaming platform. So, you know, as Cayman said at the beginning of the show, Screenbox is a really great competitor to Shudder at this point. Uh, it is the the starting point of Hulu when Netflix was the only streaming platform. Uh, if you want to compare it, I think that we are on the up and up in terms of the content that we are curating and now the content that we are creating. Um, obviously, Terrifier 2 was a huge success for us, but we also have Suicide Forest Village, which is by the director of the original Grudge. Mm -hmm. um, and I think his newest movie is on there, too. I forgot what it's called. Yellow, yellow something. Um, we have tons of incredible documentaries on there, including Pennywise, the making of it, um, just desserts, the making of creep show. We've got Leviathan, the making of Hellraiser unearthed. And I can never remember it unearthed and, un and untold. Yeah. Untold. Thank you. The story yeah. of that cemetery. Um, there, there's just so much awesome stuff on there. So, oh, you and I would agree. The rise of the synths. Yes. Is, is such a great documentary if you like retro new wave, dark synth music, synth wave, vapor wave, whatever kind of, of wave music you're into. Rise of the Synths is a much must watch documentary and soundtrack to get if you have vinyl like I do. Um, so, yeah, Screenbox is, is super cheap. It's like the, when I was doing the November Chicago Days of the Dead convention, we were doing a year subscription at two dollars, I think, a year. It was $2, I think, in a quarter a year. So you're paying like $28 for a year's membership of Screenbox. And it is well worth it. Um, you know, there's a lot of good old movies on there, too, like The Changeling, um, The Editor, which if you haven't seen The Editor, have you seen The Editor? The Editor is amazing. The Editor is amazing. <laughs> Such a good movie. Astron 6, I fucking love their stuff. The Void is great in its own way. But the editor is just so batshit and so good. And I just love it. Absolutely love it. So, yes, that's on. Um, that is uncut and unedited and not. And there's no commercial breaks. Like if you watch the editor on Tubi, I think it's on. Get Screenbox for the freaking $4 a month. Support yeah. independent horror cinema. Watch some cool shit on there. And watch Absolutely. the and also, The Outwaters is coming out in a few months, yes. which I am so jazzed for because all of the reviews coming out seem amazing. So it's that'll be coming there as well. It's not a movie. It's an experience. That's how I explain it. Which I am down for that, especially rolling off the hills of Skinnamarink. I will say the resurgence of horror is here, guys. Oh, yeah. Now, Tony, thank you so much, man. You have been amazing. I have appreciated every single story, every anecdote, everything that you've brought to the table. You are an awesome person. I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much uh, for, for having me on the show, for giving me a platform to promote my stuff to 
people that have no idea who the fuck I am. Um, so hopefully some of your, your listeners are going to be interested in, in checking out some of our work and supporting us as you have over the years now. And, um, I think that that's the bottom line is just always finding a way to get people involved in what independent creators are doing, because there's a lot of really awesome stuff out there that you know, no idea about. Um, so, you know, thank you for helping me. Yeah, absolutely. Now for the audience, if you guys enjoyed the show, Please rate, review, share the hell out of it with your friends, loved ones, and worst of enemies. Honestly, word of mouth is key here, and we aren't beggars. Also, fuck Keith. If you're interested in video games, check out our sister podcast, The Spotlight Games Podcast, and all your favorite streaming services. We also stream live every Tuesday on Twitch at 8 p.m. Eastern, so join us live there. And guess what? We got a third podcast called Spotlight TV where we're covering The Last of Us on HBO. So if you don't want to miss out on the conversations surrounding that show, then you can see those episodes live Monday nights on Twitch. And then later that night, you will get access to the audio version. In the meantime, you can follow me at Kid Cayman. Tony, where can they follow you on socials? Uh, I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram. I've got Facebook too, which is just my name, Tony Wash. It's like wash your hands, not Walsh or Warsh if you live in Pittsburgh. Um, but uh, also on Instagram is where I'm more prolific. And that would be uh, at Scotchworthy. Um, again, like a bottle of scotch worthy. We are not worthy. Just one word at scotch worthy. Um, it's a nice green skull. So it's a pretty easy avatar to catch when you search for it. And yeah, I would appreciate as many followers as possible. I'm trying to beef it up. 42 years old and trying to navigate Instagram al- algorithms is not easy. So I need some I need some natural homegrown followership. <laughs> well, I dig that. You can follow our sister podcast at Spot Game Spot on Twitter, Spotlight Games Podcast on Instagram. And if you want to follow STC, you can follow us on all socials at Save Trash Cinema. Remember, fight big box office. Save Trash Cinema. Uh-oh. I think we're going to have to take a break in the show because our host has left the show. <laughs> <laughs>